So, so far in the book of 1 Peter, we've, talked, we've been talking about those, those relationships that we talked about this morning that are strained because of, because of persecutions. But just don't think that just because maybe persecutions aren't happening uh, systematically in America or just because you're not going through persecutions that there's nothing you can learn from 1 Peter. Because I believe that uh, the vast majority of Christian life can be seen through the eyes of persecutions, even if it's not happening. I mean, listen, let's be honest, okay? Someone unfriending us on social media or talking about us behind our backs or something like that is not persecution. It's just not, okay? If you look at what the Christians were doing in the, in the first century and what they were going through, that's persecution. What we deal with is kind of jerks, for lack of a better term. I mean, we, we deal with people that are mean, but that's not really persecution. But I think there's something that we can learn from that. And First and Peter chapter 3 is going to be the perfect illustration of that. So we've talked about the relationship between God and us when we're going through trials or going through grief. Maybe it's a loss of a loved one. Maybe it's some other kind of grief. Grief doesn't just happen because someone has died. Grief happens when there is a feeling of loss for one reason or another. You know you grieve when you lose a friend? When you and a friend have a falling out? You grieve when you... You can even see the elements of grief, the stages of grief, as it were, when someone's sports team loses. I mean, grief comes in a variety of different ways that we think about it as when someone dies. But that's not the only time that grief can happen. That's, the, that's the, the culmination of it, though. That's when we really see pain. But chapter 1 deals with how we think about God in the face of some sort of grief, some sort of perceived or actual loss. You grieve when you lose a job. You grieve when you lose a friend. You grieve when you feel as though you were slighted in one way or another. Okay? And so chapter 1 deals with how do we think about grief when we're thinking about God. In chapter 2, more along the lines of how do we deal with grief when when we're thinking about um, about our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with the church. Chapter 3 deals with our relationship with with our spouses, husbands and wives, verses 1 through 7. And then... Where we're going to go to today, chapter 3, verse 8, deals with how we deal with grief, how we deal with persecution with regard to not only the church, but also the people outside. When the Christians were going through persecution to the point of death, there was a very famous writer that wrote that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the gospel. They had this weird thing going on in the Roman world where every time they killed a Christian, every time there was some sort of persecution against a Christian, more Christians would pop up because people would see. You'd, you'd look into the, the Circus Maximus where they, would, where they would exercise the capital punishment against Christians. You'd look and see Christians in the middle of the Circus Maximus smiling and singing like in Acts chapter 16 when Paul uh, when, sorry, when, when the apostles are in, uh, in prison, you, um, you'd 
look and you'd see Christians that were happy because of what was going on to them. And that's the same with Peter, with Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that we've looked at, so forth. That these Christians were happy because of what was happening to them. James chapter 1, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the trying of your faith works patience. But let patience have a perfect work, that you may be complete, lacking nothing. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So, Christians were happy when they were going through persecution, when they were going through some sort of grief for one reason or another. Chapter 3 deals with how can you use that happiness, how can you use that joy to teach people, okay? First part, how do you teach your spouse through this? Second part, let's just read it. Chapter 3, verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reveling for reveling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. There you go again. How the only time that a person, that a Christian's faith, a Christian's prayers rather, are hindered, are said to be hindered, is in chapter 3, verse 7, where it says, Husbands, you need to teach your wives the way they need to know. Because how do you expect for God to answer your prayers in an affirmative way? How do you expect God to keep up his end of the bargain when you don't even keep up your end of the bargain? Remember what we talked about this morning? That husbands have the ultimate responsibility of teaching our families and our wives how to get to heaven. How do we expect that God is going to, to answer yes to our prayers when we're not willing to keep up the, our end of the bargain? And that's what he says here again. That Verse number 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteous sake, righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord as holy. Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you, with, yet with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who re- revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should if that should be God's will than for doing evil. The first part of this section, I believe, is talking to us specifically. Anytime you get Christians together, anytime you get anyone together for a long period of time, and you get to a point where you're close to one another, you know what happens, right? You end up fighting about something. Well, let's just face it. Did y'all ever have friends growing up that your parents didn't want you to hang out with because you fought all the time? But you wanted to hang out with them. Why? Because they're my best friend. Well, all you do is fight. Yeah, because we're exactly alike and he drives me nuts. Right? Anytime you get people together in a room for long enough, they're going to turn on one another. It's going to be Lord of the Flies in here. Okay? Well, that's, that's what he's talking about. How counterproductive is it if Christians are fighting against Christians? 
That's what chapter 3, verse 8 is talking about. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Sympathy. Sympathy with who? To the other Christians. Because you, know you know what they're going through. You may not have gone through it. You may not have empathy for them. But you know that even, even those of us who have not been persecuted for our faith can put ourselves in the mindset of a person that is being persecuted for their faith. Have sympathy one to another. Have brotherly love. Have a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reveling for reveling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. He's talking to Christians and he's saying, Christians, you have to be on the same side in this because how ridiculous is it if you're fighting amongst yourselves, the world's just going to let it happen. They're trying to tear the church apart in, in this setting. They're trying to tell the church, tear the church apart through persecutions. That we're doing their work for them. I've told you all about my good friend that I went to preaching school with who was in the Navy and he was stationed in Japan and China for a little while. And, uh, and one day, somehow, al- along the way we were talking, there was a big group of us together in, in, the, in the break room at school. and We were sitting there talking about evangelism and, and we heard talk of the Memphis School of Preaching was going to start an evangelism uh, course that was much like the preaching course, but it was for just missionaries. And So we were sitting there talking about it and someone said, man, I just wish that we could get into China without having to, to kind of skirt around the laws. Because we have missionaries in China, but they're there as English teachers or product developers or something else. They just happen to take a lot of Bibles with them and try to convert people while they're there. Wink, wink, hint, hint. Well, someone said, why can't we just get missionaries into China? And, and my good friend Jimmy said, well, you, you want to know why China doesn't want Christianity in there? What's their politics? We said, well, they're, they're communists. That's why they don't want us in there. They don't want Christianity as a whole in China because it goes against their political ideas. They're trying to unite a nation in communism. They don't want Christianity in there because all we do is fight about it. Now, that's talking about the whole religious world that's calling itself Christianity. But I think there's something in there for Christians too. We shoot ourselves in the foot a lot because we're fighting amongst each other. Have you ever been talking with someone and you say, I'm a member of the Church of Christ, and they go, oh, which kind? Y'all ever had that question? Which kind? The first time I heard it, I was a fairly new Christian. I didn't know what that meant. And I said, what, what do you mean, which kind? And they said, well, there's, there's the kind that only uses one cup. There's the kind that doesn't eat in the in the buildings there's the kind that doesn't support funeral or doesn't support missionaries or doesn't support children's homes there's the kind that does this and the kind that does this and the kind that does this and I was a new Christian I thought no there's not that no that's not that doesn't happen in the church well it does that's what first Peter's talking about how easy is it for persecution to arise when we're destroying the church from the inside they don't have to do anything else but whoever desires to love life and see good days, we have to stay together. Christians have to work together. Because, look at chapter 3, verse 13. 
Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Twice in this chapter, he said, have no fear. Once he said it to, his, to the wives, because it is scary to try to convert your husband. And he says, don't be fearful because you're going to be successful in this if you keep trying. And if, you know, you just, you do your job and let them do their job. And then the second time he says, you don't need to have any fear in them nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and with respect. At times, we will lash out, much like we do toward each other, but we'll lash out at people who just don't understand. Remember what we talked about last week, that sometimes the world just doesn't understand what they're doing. They don't understand what they're saying. It's not because they're evil and they hate the church. Are there people out there that are evil and hate the church? Yes. But the majority of them just don't understand. What happens if you're a Christian And you watch other Christians be put to death in the Circus Maximus. And someone walks up to you. This is right after it happens, okay? You're leaving. And you've watched your brothers and sisters give their lives for the faith. And you're walking out. And someone says, you you hear them walking by. Man, they were happy. I, I just don't understand why they were so happy. And you say, well, I'm a Christian. Now, of course, I know this is an illustration, and this may not happen the way that I'm talking about it in that time period. But you turn and say, I'm a Christian. And they say, why, why are you all so hopeful? Why are you all so happy, even though you're being put to death? You could go one of two ways. You could either go the way of being angry, because rightfully so, because of what ha- just happened. Or you can say, here's why we have hope. The reason why we're so happy is because the people that just gave their lives in the Circus Maximus actually won the battle. You may think they lost, but they actually won, and here's why. You see, Christians fighting against each other will stop the gospel, but Christians being overtly argumentative, overtly hateful, or hostile toward the people that just simply ask questions will do the exact same thing. We have the ability to to help someone obey the gospel. And how we talk to them has a direct effect on how that happens, or even if it happens. All right, so let's go on. Verse number 18. This is the confusing section of 1 Peter chapter 3. Are you ready? This is the one that everybody wants to argue about, everyone wants to debate, and I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, if you disagree, that's fine. You have the right, we live in America, you have the right to be wrong, okay? I'm just kidding. It's just a joke. All right, you ready? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been submitted, subjected to him. All right, the, the, the argumentative part of this is, just remember, I just got done talking about Christians fighting against each other. The argumentative part about this passage is, what in the world does Peter mean when he says that he went and preached to the people in prison, who are now in prison? This is the verse that, comes, that, that brings the idea of purgatory. That, that somehow there's a second chance after you die. Here's what it means. That Christ has been preached on earth since the beginning of time. Period. He may not have been here yet. We may not have called him Christ yet. He, he didn't have the name Jesus yet. But he has been preached throughout all time. Back in the garden. I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head and you'll bruise his heel. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and the lamb that is slain. Christ has been preached from the beginning to the end. In verse number 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, it means they had their chance. Now they're in prison, but they had a chance to obey. Not in purgatory. When they had the chance to obey was when they were alive and had a law that was given to them, whether it was during the time of Adam and Eve and Abraham or whether it was the time of Moses and the prophets. Whatever time it was, they had a chance. If they had just done what God said, they would have been saved the same way we're saved. But they didn't. And so now they're in prison. And what Peter is trying to say is, Christians, you need to stop fighting amongst yourselves and be united because you're going to have to put a united front against persecutions, against the world. You have to work together. Because there are going to be people who are genuine, who just want to know, and they're going to ask you for the reason of the hope that's in you. And you need to be ready to give them an answer. That means, number, that means, yes, you need to be ready to teach them the gospel. Sit down with a Bible in hand across a coffee table or across a table at a coffee shop or wherever other people usually exist. I'm either close to a coffee table or in a coffee shop most of the time. But wherever, you know, normal humans live, you need to be able to sit down and teach them the gospel. But it also means that you need to do much the same that the wives were told to do to their husbands and the husbands to do to their wives. Sit down and teach them, but also live faithfully in front of them and show them as well. Because there are going to be people who are genuine, who just want to know. And then chapter 3, verse 18 through the rest says, and everyone's going to have a chance. You need to work together to be ready to give an answer regardless of how that answer needs to be given, because everyone gets a chance to obey the gospel. Period. What Jim said in Bible class this morning is very true. That God placed within us consciousness, a conscience that knows right from wrong. Sometimes that conscience is seared because of traditions, because of mental illness, because of something else. But the majority of people have a sense of right and wrong built within them. That's what Romans chapter 1 is all about. 
You have a sense of right and wrong that was built inside of you. And that right or wrong pushes you to look for God. You have to look for him in the right spot, though. But every person on earth has the chance to obey the gospel. Especially nowadays. If it isn't for someone going and teaching them, which it's our responsibility to do that, it's their responsibility to go and look for it. So here's chapter 3 in a nutshell. All the way back to verse 1. If you want to convert your spouse, wives, live like Christ for the ch- Christ and the church. If you want to convert your spouse, husbands, know what they need to know so that you can teach them. If you want to convert the world, it's going to take a little mixture of both of those. Living as the church so that they can see the relationship between the, the church and the Christ and teaching them. Because everyone has to have an opportunity. That's why Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's why Paul said that it was his responsibility. Paul didn't just have that responsibility because he was an apostle. He had that responsibility because he was a Christian. To go and help people learn the gospel. And then, chapter 3 ends with the, the, the statement that all of us know very well. Baptism is not a putting away the filth of the flesh. It's not taking a bath, it's the inquiry, or how does the ESV, the appeal, it is the appeal, the appeal of God going to God and saying, I know I've had my chance to obey the gospel, and I want to take that chance to the fullness of actually obeying it. And so while I do this, I'm asking you, Lord, to save me from my sins. If somebody ever says, Anything about the sinner's prayer. You know, you know the, the, the cookie cutter answer to the sinner's prayer is what? Well, it's not found in the Bible. It technically is. In 1 Peter 3, where it says baptism is how you ask God for salvation. The sinner's prayer is more like the sinner's baptism. That's how you ask God for salvation. Because every person has a chance. And when that chance is laid in front of us, we have to do something because of it. If there's someone here that needs to do that, let's do it right now. Let's not wait any longer. If there is someone here that needs to repent of sins, maybe it's because your relationship is messed up and you need help and you just need encouragement. Maybe it's because you have been part of kind of the catalyst that pushes people away from the church, whatever it is, then let us know so that we can help you. If you need to become a Christian, then through baptism, then that's definite. You need to make that, that known for sure now as we stand and sing.